From remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dude. 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 Here's the dudes. There were voices, and thunderings, and lightnings, and an earthquake. This was my dream. Hello everyone, welcome to the Legion of Dudes presents Kingdom Come, issue number four. We finally made it to the end, guys, so it's been pretty cool so far, and now we get to the climax, the, the battle issue to end all battle issues. My name's Jim Dietz, I'm joined tonight by Ken Morgan, and Russell Latham, and Adam Umax. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. What's up? The Legion of Dudes has been assembled. And once again, uh, joining us with the Kingdom Come love, because we know he is the, the Kingdom Come uh, fanboy to end all Kingdom Come fanboys, Bill McGonnell from Half Hour Wasted, <laughs> The Voice. How you doing, Bill? I'm doing great, guys. You know, so, yeah, it's a wonderful evening down here in North Texas, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm feeling loose. I'm ready to go. <laughs> That's awesome. We have a couple of announcements to get to before uh, we get to the uh, meat of the show, as it were. Uh, first of all, this weekend, Legion of Dudes will be in effect at the Steel City Con in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's at the Pittsburgh Indoor Sports Arena on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, we'll be right by the uh, Comic Geek Speak guys and the Steel City Dermy Demons right across from the uh, celebrity row, as it were. So come by and, and show the Legion some love. Uh, if you're in town Friday night for the Geek Throwdown at Gypsy Cafe, uh, free food and drink and geekery, you can find more information about that on www.hhwlod.com or on www.thecomicforums.com where we have a thread all about Still City Con and the Geek Throwdown. Also, coming up on Free Comic Book Day, uh, Russ has a special event anyone to tell us about. Russ? Yeah, in, uh, in Houston, Texas. At um, West Oaks Mall, which is on the west side of town, it's right off the corner of Westheimer and Highway 6, if you're familiar with that area in Houston, for all our Houston area listeners. Midnight Comics is going to be presenting Comic Palooza. It's going to be at West Oaks Mall. Um, it's going to be Saturday and Sunday, so it'll be, I guess, May 2nd and 3rd. Um, it's pretty much going to be all day um, in the, spread out in the mall. Um, so come check it out. I will be there at various points throughout the weekend, so come say hi. That's awesome. We have uh, two events, two weekends in a row. Uh, still CityCon. We're also going to be doing a uh, trivia contest on Saturday at 1 p.m. Uh, with the Still City Derby Demons and the CGS guys. A little help from the Mighty Murd on that one. Uh, thanks a lot to uh, Adam Murdo. And um, that's great. This week, uh, Still CityCon. Next week, Comic Palooza. Uh, make a world tour of it. Legion of Dudes World Tour, 09. 
<laughs> Are you trying to uh, out trivia Murdo? Um, no, he's helping actually. He uh, helped contribute oh, okay. some of the questions. When you need something, you go right to the source. You go to the master. So I asked for his help immediately, and he was very gracious to help out. And uh, so he, he supplied us with some of the more obscure trivia uh, that we'll be asking. Giving away cool prizes, and it'll be a fun time. And come on down. Be awesome. And it's a good thing you're not playing against Murdo because uh, my guess is that'd be like trying to win Ben Stein's money. Yeah. <laughs> good luck with that. Much better to have well, on yeah, your side. You. I'm good. Yeah, CGS uh, used to, at the Pittsburgh Con, uh, host a trivia contest, and I was bested by many a murder question, so... Oh, man. Uh, like the embers of Mark Wade. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Well, I mean, he did get a degree in pop culture, so there you go. Wow. <laughs> what kind of job do you get with that? <laughs> you have to ask him. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, we start off the uh, issue four. It's called a never-ending battle, and we start with a picture of uh, of Superman covered in in uh, smoke, red smoke, as if it were rising off of him, kind of in the middle of of an explosion. And the page right and the page across, we uh, see the battle in full swing. Uh, Superman and Captain Marvel grappling one another. We see uh, Red Robin fighting in the fray. There's Wonder Woman. All the major players. Are being shown fighting one trying to, now the gulag has exploded pretty much at the end of issue three chaos is ensuing and the specter is looking down upon it all and i mean again another gorgeous alex ross portrayal of these really iconic characters i mean uh, it's kind of uh it reminds me of an old avengers cover kind of from the perspective uh from the bottom right left perspective like ants view uh, but it was the avengers uh, versus the squadron supreme that perez did uh, early in his yeah. run, it was the same perspective and the same lineup, you know, the way that the heroes have lined up. I can't help but think that's some sort of an homage. That is uh, Perez-esque uh, to include that many characters in uh, one beautiful two-page spread. Oh, yeah, totally. I, that cost you. <laughs> I can easily see the two-page spread above my desk. That would be great. But what do you I'm think, what do you think Adam? What, 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 would the, uh, what would that page go for? Just your guesstimate. Probably upwards of 20000 at the very least. Wow. If you look at uh, his prices that Uncle Sal's posted, uh, a lot of the single-page spreads from the Alex Ross Justice series start around, I'm going to say three to 5000 depending on which one. This wow. is kind of like the, um, well, the big one out of the series. And to put a price on it's kind of difficult. Just looking at Alex Ross double-page splashes and spreads and stuff, I think that's a fair starting point. Man, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, it's definitely one of those pieces you can just keep looking at over and over and, like, finding new things. I mean, you see the green flame in the background of the old-school Green Lantern. You see all kinds of uh, things, you know, things going on. I mean, again, like you said, very Perez-esque, a lot going on, a lot of different figures fighting. Flash running around in the background. Yeah, I love the, uh, the, the completely animalistic Hawkman, too, wearing his, um, uh, his Egyptian garb. You know, there you can see his claws and, you know, his head. It just, he, he doesn't look like a human pretty much at all. Just, man, what a, what a cool look there. Near, near Hawkman, who is that, or what is that metallic dragon-looking thing? Is that something that was created for the King and Come, or is that something that's existed before? I'm not sure. I was wondering if that was, uh, if that was Alloy um, in the background getting pushed over by whatever the giant red uh, devil thing is. We need some kind of apocrypha. Um, we need a, a chart of uh, right. who all is uh, here on this page. Because some of it, uh, very, very smart people can probably piece uh, most of these together, if not all of them. But um, I'm afraid I'm not quite there. 
is the um the the giant you're talking about the giant uh, metallic one yes uh, i think that's alloy which is uh all the metal men amalgamated into one giant beast yeah. we saw him earlier in the series in uh, kansas uh right before captain adam got ripped open and uh, all heck broke loose there so that's uh i think that's who we're seeing there that's fair okay great yeah that's one of the more arresting panels in this uh series that that shot of uh alloy bending over and um yeah, the parasite is, is cornered and getting ready to plead for mercy. But just that, that shot of like, the big one-eyed alloys, it's like, ugh, man. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing nightmares are made of. It's nice to find out he's a good guy. I'm looking at the keys of the kingdom at the end, which is all the notes. And I don't, yeah, alloy, right next to Magog. Is that is that right? That's what the notes show, which would make sense. Yeah, he was shown as being a, a giant uh, earlier. Kind of reminiscent of the robot Gort from the original uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still, you know, giant robot with that one eye, the one glowing eye. Or I guess the old uh, toasters from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there are so many uh, spreads and, and, and uh, panels in this in this book that we could, you know, spend just all day just lost in Alex Ross's art. What I really, what really impresses me is even in these smaller panels when Norman starts to talk to... Uh, the specter about what is going on to ask him to make it stop. Superman is too late. Um, we still in the background. We see, you know, the bulleteer. We see the star, you know, star man from the 30th century. We see, uh, you know, all these characters built, you know, built into the background, even, you know, in the smaller panels, as well as the bigger ones. And it keeps alternating between panels of the fight and panels of Norman pleading with the specter. How much time has passed? Why not? Why in God's name does it have to happen? And the specter seems to think that there will be a reckoning. The scriptures say, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. So this isn't what basically the specter is telling Norman is. This isn't even as bad as it's going to get. It's going to get worse than this. This isn't even what he was brought here for. You know, this is just a prologue to what's about to happen, which is, you know, considering the melee and the chaos and everything, it's kind of hard to believe. And I love on that page of Wonder Woman with her green bloody spear in one hand and the shield and the that. Yeah, we see the Flash kind of zooming around on these pages as well. Yeah, all you're seeing of him is a big blur. It's, a, it's just he's everywhere at once trying to do as much as he can to stop this. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you wonder if uh, the Flash can be doing a little more, huh? He can't move at almost infinite speed, so yeah, he can't just take everybody out in like 0.3 seconds and get it over with. Move on to the next page where um, we see Superman confronting Captain Marvel. But it explained, the uh, captions explain that because of what Luthor has done in issue three with, that we saw with the Mr. Mind Worms, that Captain Marvel is there, but his mind is chaotic, to say the least. He's uh, gone over the edge after having been conditioned by uh, Luthor after all this time and then having that control broken. And he starts throwing Superman around. He's the only one who can really go toe-to-toe with Superman. The only one who could uh, really you know, keep pace, and he's preventing him from stopping the chaos and stopping the battle that's going on around him. I just love the fact that Superman is just desperate at this point, believing himself to be the only person who can stop the fight, and uh, there he is, you know, completely helpless to uh, uh, devote time to it. So you just so rarely get, you know, a, a desperate Superman. That's uh, it's one more example of uh, how Mark Wade, you know, really went above and beyond uh, the, the entire way through this book. Certainly right there. 
Yeah, what I love is it makes total sense that Captain Marvel would be the one to keep him in check, too. One of Superman's you know, classic nemeses or, or ways to you know attack him or it was uh, magic. He's always been weak against magic. And Captain Marvel's entire superpower is based on magic. So it, it makes perfect sense that he would be the counter to Superman to keep Superman from you know stemming the tide of uh, you know the bloodshed going on after the aftermath of the gulag. Yeah, two jigsaw pieces fitting perfectly together. Thank you, Mr. Wade. Our next scene, we see uh, the United Nations, which we noticed earlier looks like the um, Hall of Justice from the outside. The United Nations have decided they're going to deal with the superhuman problem once and for all. Now that they're all contained in one area, they have a, uh, a bomb that has a lot of different uh, multi-megaton nuclear explosives held in reserve just for just this moment. So this is their opportunity. They can finally get rid of the you know, superhuman problem. The man behind the podium who we saw before in, uh, when Norman was taking his tour with uh, the Spectre pretty much sells it to everyone and then sends the Blackhawk soldier or the, uh, the Blackhawk to, uh, to deliver the payload in the middle of the, uh, the firefight. So you know, if you think it's bad now, now we're going to drop, drop a giant nuke on everything to, to deal with the supers. The, the nuke of all tactical nukes. But I love how they were able to. This is this is a great way to bring the Blackhawks into it. So you know, again, a, another nod to the past. You know that Wade and, and Ross were able to bring into this book. Yeah, I like how he uh, nod to uh, other science fiction series is on the uh, the top of this page is uh, on the blueprint. I'm pretty sure we see the uh, the opening of the air vent and the Death Star, and in the second panel, I wonder if. Uh, the, the UN building, it looks like the Hall of Justice is actually some kind of TARDIS, as it looks like it's, it's acres wide on the inside and uh, looks anything but on the outside. So, I don't know. It's yeah, bigger. Do a call on Star Wars Doctor Who there. That would be great. And, it, and it's, it's such a contrast, too. You know, the inside of that UN building is so pristine and white and clean and expansive, and you're contrasting it with these, you know, pages that are, you know, darker and, and these brutal fights and the blackness of the specter and all that kind of stuff. Just kind of an interesting, interesting contrast. Not to mention what uh, the what's going on inside that sterile, clean, white hospital-like room could not be much more hideous either. <laughs> decide to uh, nuke their own populations, basically. Not one, but three. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, one will do it. So I've authorized the use of three. That was just like, well, yeah. Okay, that ought to, one of those I'll slip through. I'm guessing. And uh, you know, if they're really serious, that's pretty smart to uh, send more than one out there because, as they found out, when you're dealing with superheroes or anything, you know, things go wrong. And you now the idea is to get one of them through. So maybe he realized full well that they were trying to slip one through. They weren't actually planning on dropping all three of them, being just being reasonable and, and figuring that some meta-human is going to be able to pick one or two of those out of the sky. Maybe they figured they couldn't get all of them. What I like, uh, you brought up how it's all white and sterile while they're discussing genocide. It's really cool how how when the speaker at the, the podium is resolute and trying to sell this to the rest of the, you know, the assembly, it's all bright and white and he says Godspeed and then when uh, he's alone in his office and they're showing like a moment of doubt as he you know holds his uh, his uh, you know his brow you know looking down uh, the te- you know it goes from bright white to uh, like a sepia tone not only that you know, he's in yeah. his office surrounded by you know mentors of his family his picture of his family his world's best dad cub I mean this is a man who knows the weight of humanity knows what's going on and knows what he had just done well his uh, his coffee cup does world's best dad on it Yeah, he's feeling some weight. That's that classic, uh, you know, what in God's name have I done moment. 
yeah, it's definitely cool the way they stop, that Ross stops and, and leaves us with this character for just an extra few beats. We realize, you know, the gravity of the situation, both the reader and this character, you know, all at once in just a few panels. It's really, really good visual storytelling. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this thing's uh, laid out uh, like you would edit a uh, movie. It's almost widescreen on a uh, single page. Um, the next page, we go back to the, uh, the fray, as it were, at the gulag. We see Von Bach taking out a few uh, people. Then we also see the, uh, is that the ray in the front uh, I believe so, shot yeah. of the second panel here? I think it is. Yeah. Going up, going up against more of the escapees. We see Manitar uh, clutching Power Girl by the throat. The Flash again in the background in the fourth panel uh, trying to stop things. We see Joker's daughter. Again, a lot of the characters that we've seen all along through here now at each other's throats, you know, just total chaos and it's cool how the layout of the of the panels themselves kind of express this because the camera angles are all different like you have that mid shot of, of von bach then you have the aerial shot from behind the rays back then you're you know right in the middle of it with you know his his hand on power girl's throat and then you, you yeah. see norman kind of you know looking off to the side by using all those different camera angles it just makes it even feel more chaotic to me in this one it seems like the use of perspective and and the camera angles is a lot more dynamic than we've seen you know, previously. I mean, the other issues, you know, definitely this is not a typical either straight on or straight above, you know, style of book. But in this one, it just seems a lot more pronounced and a lot, a lot more, it has so much more effect when you see the way this is composed from these different angles. It's, it's just so dynamic. Yeah. And it's just like you, uh, like you edit a movie or I guess a, a TV show where if you do it well, you can kind of drag the person's eye around the screen. That's exactly what happens. On both these uh, these two pages we're looking at specifically, but you know, all over the book, it's just done so well. But you know, it starts up top with Von Bach in the middle and drags your eye to the left. Second panel with the ray, and then the third panel, you uh, come down and see was a Von Bach. Your eyes sweep back across Power Girl to Manitar, and then the panel below it. You uh, you notice uh, Red Robin briefly, but then your eyes focus on McKay, and your eyes literally being dragged around the page. And that is, if you can do that in editing, it uh, it's very subconscious, but it's incredibly effective. And uh, for them to do that uh, here so well, one more layer to add to just exquisite artwork. Speaking of exquisite artwork, the next page, as Batman and his allies descend upon the scene, is, again, just phenomenal. I mean, you see Ollie Queen coming down on a rope in the background. Just the look on Batman's face as they zoom in, you know, for the bottom right panel there. You see the Blue Beetle, the Creeper, uh, the the second Green Lantern who is Jade, Black the new Black Canary, uh, Wildcat. I mean, just his whole forces are coming down from, as I said right here, a force from on high. <laughs> it's the same. Uh, it's, a, it's a mirror of the composition from when um, Superman, Power Girl, and the rest of the Justice League descended in issue two. It's just, this is Batman's squad. Yep. Yes. Now, are they, they're being teleported in by somebody or something, I'm guessing. I'm not 100% sure that ever really hit me like that before. I think that's uh, uh, Avia, uh, the daughter of uh, Big Barda and Scott Free and a Boom Tube. That would be my oh, guess. Oh, okay, okay. I think that's who yeah, that that's... is there on the right there. That would be my guess anyway, because I know she's on that team. I'll bet five yes. bucks you're right. And I love that smile on Bruce's face. It's just like, you know, he's back in the fray. He's back in the fight again after all this time. He's enjoying himself for the first time in years. <laughs> yeah. It's true because up until then he'd been, you know, vicariously keeping Gotham City in order with his bat robots. And he had, you know, because of his 
uh, neck brace or what have you had not been you know sucked into the fray himself. But now he's uh, he's definitely coming I back with the, the zeal. <laughs> I love that he's got the creeper on his side. Awesome. Yeah, the creeper is one of those that uh, it seems like uh, back when I was first uh, becoming uh, becoming a little self aware little kid. Uh, one of my comics uh, that I bought was the. Uh, uh, that was the time there in the early 70s when those uh, giant sized Justice Leagues were coming out. So they'd have, you know, the, the big story up front and they'd have, a, you know, two or three little backstories. And, you know, they'd typically be, uh, you know, reprints, characters like Sandman, Eclipso, and, you know, real, uh, you know, real background type characters. And, uh, yeah, he'd, uh, he'd show up occasionally. Wow, you, uh, you and I have so much in common, man, because those are some of the first comics I ever read. Because I, I read, watched Super Friends as a little kid. Now it's yeah. like the 100-page or the 80-page giants of the the uh, Justice League. would be like, oh, I know Superman, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, and that's how I was introduced to a lot of those yeah. characters, like you said, like the Creeper. We went to the uh, Dallas uh, Science Fiction something uh, con uh, yesterday, and I sat there and looked at the issue where uh, Mattermaster is turning the Justice League into uh, different creatures, like Batman's a deer and the Flash becomes like a fly, and just uh, I'm sitting there looking at that going, oh, man. It's like, uh, you know, half a $12 is not that bad, but I just I just couldn't walk out with it. I've actually been looking for some others right in that run, so uh, I don't know, maybe I need to go to New Cadia or, I don't know. I'm surprised that they don't, uh, that they don't trade those uh, those issues. I mean... The uh, showcases are catching up to those. I just yeah, got to showcase yeah. uh, Justice League of America Volume 3, and I think that's up through issue 70 or 65. Dude, let me blow your so mind. I... I just picked up, um, about uh, two weeks ago, I picked up uh, uh, Volume 4 uh, from uh, a Zeus Comics uh, half-price sale. And uh, that's tremendous. So, yeah, they're getting up into the, uh, uh, they're getting, uh, they finish up Gardner Fox's run, and they, uh, you're starting to see the first uh, issues that uh, the great Dick Dillon uh, writes uh, or draws. Though it doesn't become truly iconic art until uh, Dick Giordano uh, takes over, uh, ways down. The, uh, anchored Sid Green, boy, we're tangenting. Sorry. He doesn't do quite as good a job of making things as angular and dark, but I think Dick Dillon and Giordano's, uh, Batman is just kind of like I think Bennis's, uh, art is perfect for the current JLA. I think, uh, Dillon and those guys were, uh, responsible for much of the reason why I love that early JLA. Just great artwork. So go out and get them, people. I just wish they came out in color. Oh, well. Yeah. That's good reading. Yeah, I am. I'm with you. No, almost as good reading as uh, as Kingdom Come here, and you you rarely in the old Justice League see uh, see scenes like this with uh, people getting their uh, their toenails pulled out and uh, nailed to uh, front <laughs> posts and all that good stuff. This is definitely uh, this is the point where you uh, if it were a movie you would fast forward past this for the kids' sake. But luckily we're all adults here and we can handle it. So yeah, I hope yeah. so. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right so far. I've got my paper bag here in case I start hyperventilating. We see on the next page the panels are, are becoming more and more skewed. You know, one is that the the top panel is, is straight on top at an angle. The next is a parallelogram. They get it's even getting more and more chaotic uh, as Batman's uh, crew have come in to try to stem the tide, try to stop you know stop the battle that's going on, try to stop the loss of life. Yeah, I'm trying to and, figure out uh, that that layout is very very bold there. And kind of like uh, when you first saw them, uh, when you first saw the, the metahumans get into their first fight in issue one, where it almost looks like you know the the pages are torn, and uh, it does that on the left side of the spread. On the right side of the spread, it does almost the exact same layout, 
but the um, uh, the border in between the individual panels is very straight and uh, very clean. And I would be interested if anybody had any reasons why Ross had done it like that. But very effective. It uh, really grabs your eye. I mean, I, I love Alex Ross a lot. I uh, I'm still interested in anything he does. But um, I just you know I I almost can't imagine that he ever does a uh, better job than this. I mean, wow, this is just. It's just flawless from beginning to end. We see the, the like I said, the first page, the, uh, the the panels start to skew. We see Vigilante, we see the Blue Beetle, and the um, all kinds of different characters. And uh, the Wiz, that's, that's actually his name, in the bottom panel there. And we, uh, as as the battle continues, we see a blade come shutting, uh, shooting out of Von Bach's chest. And it's Wonder Woman's sword. And she's killed, <laughs> killed Von Bach. And talk about, like, throwing a... Uh, a firecracker into a gasoline station or something. The uh, 666 season, she killed Von Vach, or Von Bach, get her, you know? And it's well, this is the first that we've seen anyone actually die on this battlefield. But what did he expect? I mean, it was going to stay a fistfight all the way through. I don't mind that, uh, that that line of dialogue happened. It seems just slightly disingenuous. You know what? I can't believe someone actually got hurt doing this. Everybody gang up on her. Well, number one, that'd be bad strategy, but... Um, uh, I guess uh, a guy that looks like that. Anybody with face tattoos probably hasn't thought every decision in their life uh, through uh, as well as they could have. Get her. That's your big plan, huh? Yeah, <laughs> so it makes sense, yeah. Yeah, it's like you know basketball. Everybody claps on Wonder Woman's wall, and the good guys will flank you. So, uh, you know, you really want to do that? All right. I hate to get too picky with him. I, I understand he's uh, basically uh, – this is – there's a lot of passion involved in that statement there. I love the ripped uh, borders, too, on the panels. We went from the straight, Absolutely. kind of chaotic, to the ripped version as things get more and more broken down. Things are getting more and more crazy. And uh, yeah. you know, Diana draws first blood. Well, and again, is this, uh, is this the first time since the first issue where you've seen the ripped page layout? Okay. I hate to admit I didn't go back and uh, peruse all the way issues one through three on the way back up here after this evening. Actually, in issue one, the uh, pages are ripped like that too. Yeah, uh, when we exactly. first see the uh, when we first see the uh, out of control metahumans yeah, uh, before Superman returns. Yeah, any kind of chaotic chaotic uh, scene we're going to be seeing that's that's where he's using those panels the most, just to kind of you know put a fine point on the uh, on the chaos that we're expected to be seeing. Make, makes you wonder if, if he actually like drew these as like full pages. Or you know, rendered, you know, painted, and everything them is, is either full pages or mostly full pages, and literally kind of rip rip them to overlay like that. Or if he designed the layout first and then just kind of painted around it. That's a cool question. I I would love to know that. Well, next time we interview Alex Ross, we'll ask him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I really love the next page with uh, Diana and Bruce back to back, and Diana's like, "You're out of your league." Versus, like, we're here to save lives rather than take them. And then they, they have their basic philosophical uh, difference in, a dis- you know, in an argument while they're fighting for their lives, surrounded by yeah. crazed metahumans. You know. Oh, let's have a philosophical discussion. And then finally, Diana gets so mad at his, at his uh, you know, egalitarian like, arrogance, you know, a- you know, aristocratic bastard. How dare you condemn me? And just slaps Batman with the side of her blade. So, <laughs> yeah. so, it, but I do love the way, the way uh, Bruce condenses like Wonder Woman's thing, you know, uh, force peace, the Amazon tenant, spread love and understanding, but don't be afraid to bloody your fists doing it. <laughs> yeah. I love this exchange that we get between the two of them over the next 
several pages. And it's it's kind of an interesting in the past it always seems like Bruce that's been the one that's taken it to the next step and I mean granted he's never killed anybody, but he's always used force and fear and intimidation and, and violence really to to get his, his way and now I think he's he's seen how it's all come home to roost and you know, realizes that you can't just you know that that's not going to get us out of this. You know, going in with guns blazing is not is not how this needs to to end. That you know we need to we need to think about this because we're 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 making it worse. We're not making it better. Interesting that she has so much respect for Batman too that uh, um, she basically is allowing herself to feel judged by him. I think someone who is a a relatively immortal goddess uh, wouldn't necessarily need the uh, the worship of uh, the mortal. But um, that's exactly what she's uh, looking for here. Yeah, let alone explain herself, you know, to a mere mortal. You know, I mean, she yeah. might, exactly like you're saying, you know, it shows the respect that she has for Bruce that she would even explain herself at all. Well, and there are um, there are definite, you know, there there's certain continuities. Uh, you know, the I know in uh, the Justice League Unlimited, um, those couple series, I guess, in the Justice League cartoon uh, overall. Um, it's strongly hinted at that uh, Batman and Wonder Woman um, kind of pine for each other, if you will, and are uh, too stubborn or too much uh, victims of circumstances to ever actually consummate their apparent uh, uh, tension with each other. So, because you you see in the cartoon, there's there's a number of times where they you know look like they're getting ready to go into the kiss, and then you know somebody comes up and says, "Hey, we got a problem." Yeah, you know, and then they have to. Break uh, break scene and you know go do things and so I wonder you know in this uh, their their kind of she's you know Wonder Woman you know literally just you know the third leg of a mighty friendship or has there been any kind of of love tension you know between her and Superman or her and Batman or uh, God forbid uh, a love triangle I you know I think we're certainly reading too much into it at this point but it's a question you know what what exactly you know we don't know what exactly their relationship is. Was that um, Batman Wonder Woman thing, uh, um, was that exclusive to the cartoon? Because that's the first time I remember ever seeing that kind of storyline. You know, uh, frankly, uh, it is as far as I know. Um, I know the, uh, oh gosh, uh, what was the uh, episode? Uh, it was one of the, uh, the, uh, the, the bad evil magic lady um, gets released from Tartarus, um, and she comes back and she turns Wonder Woman into a pig. And uh, Batman has to spend the rest of the episode trying to get Wonder Woman turned back into a woman. And, uh, Cersei, no, yeah. That, okay, um, yeah, Cersei, thank you. That's exactly who it is. And uh, at the beginning of uh, that episode, they're on stakeout um, outside the entrance to a very posh uh, um, hotel party kind of thing. And, um, yeah, there, there's some tension there, just just for example. So, but, yeah, I do think that, uh, that that's something that's never been hinted at as far as I know in any of the comics. Uh, I haven't read every Justice League comic. Uh, there's a lot of them I missed in the uh, the 90s, but, uh, you know, uh, I just I do not know. Um, I'm kind of thinking that uh, uh, maybe not. My my assumption would be that it is just literally, you know, the, you know, the triumvirate. Um, you know, each each of the three considers them you know, themselves three equals, possibly. I mean, uh, if Superman and Wonder Woman consider Batman one of their equals, then that's a uh, the heck of a nod to uh, his... Still considering that he's certainly not medicated in any way. Yeah, we definitely we definitely see the respect that Diana has for Bruce here, and in the little epilogue, which we'll get to later, she grabs Bruce and takes him up into the sky. It says, after all those years, 
you have the nerve to swagger out of your cave and expect everyone to bow to your precious wisdom. Well, it's too late for that, Bruce. They're about to find out it's even later than they think. Uh, yeah. They get up to uh, the stratosphere, and they keep arguing, and then they look and see uh, the special surprise that uh, the, the uh, United Nations has sent their way. The look on their faces is just priceless. Is or stop. Um, yeah, and it looks like she's getting ready to lop his head clean off at that point. She's uh, mad enough to do it, and um, you know, in the classic uh, style of adventure stories, the uh, the cavalry, <laughs> wink, wink, uh, comes over the uh, hill just at the right time for Batman. Some cavalry. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fairly ironic uh, version of cavalry, I think. But um, uh, one of the things I love about this uh, uh, this fourth issue um, is the way this uh, uh, the action scene just does these these mighty camera cuts, you know, these mighty scene changes from the battle to you know the stuff of Norman and the Spectre and the battle and to what um, Wonder Woman you know and Bruce are doing uh, you know between the battle and uh, the uh, the UN you know standing at the UN where they decide to go ahead and drop the bombs. I mean, I just think it does a brilliant job of um, of cutting you from scene to scene to scene, and um, uh, especially uh, as we transition from this scene, you, know, you see that great uh, close-up of the uh, the ship, and then there's Bruce and uh, uh, Diana's uh, face, and you can see the horror on Diana, and you know from that the cut to Superman blasting Captain Marvel um, as hard as he can with his uh, his his heat eye beams uh, is just again another marvelous cut. <laughs> no pun intended. It's so cool too as he get, as he transitions from panel after panel just packed with people, 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 you know, all fighting, all chaos, all dark, and then here's this shot of Diana and Bruce up above the class. There's no one else there, you know, the class just virginal, white and bright and clean, and then they see the bomb. It just yeah. uh, it's a great transition. Well, and how many times has uh, Alex? Maybe this is a discussion for you know, after we're done with the uh, the issue, but. Uh, how many events has Alex Ross actually um, done totally himself? Because I know that uh, Injustice and um, um, this is like uh, Avengers Invaders that's uh, coming out right now, um, he's actually got uh, other people penciling. Uh, was it Doug Braithwaite pencils Injustice, and then he, I assume, paints over that? You know, just, uh, you know, he obviously doesn't hear, but you know, how many of, of these things that he has done you know, were actually you know, full-on done by him? Because I know these days he basically does, you know, lots of covers. You know, I, I don't know, you know, I, I couldn't tell you what the last comic book he actually graced with his fine interior work was. I'd have to guess Uncle Sam. That might be okay. the last one that he totally did himself. I mean, unless somebody else has a... Um... Was it an issue of JSA or was it one of the JSA specials or something? He did? Okay, it, the, um, the JSA Magog uh, Superman special was um, yeah. was done by Alex Ross, but I think uh, one of the reasons, I know uh, Milo and myself pretty much considered that to be one of the finest comics of 2008. I just thought that was just tremendous. Uh, but um, Alex Ross takes a different tack in this book. He actually uh, pencils and inks it. It's not painted, uh, necessarily. And it's a really cool look. Yeah, it was definitely uh, worth notice. Um, so, you know, even that, uh, the last thing he's done, you know, he uh, did not paint it. So uh, uh, it's been quite a while since he's uh, painted a book um, that he did his own uh, pencils on, I suppose. He's only doing covers on Project Superpowers for uh, Dynamite. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, haven't, read, so. I haven't read any of them. 
Yeah, I picked up the issue zero of that, and yeah, I believe again uh, the interior art is, uh, is other people. Okay, and on the next page we see Superman and uh, Captain Marvel at it. We see one half of the the quartet and the other half of the power quartet, as it were. And uh, we see Billy taking a shot of heat vision and then turning, yelling Shazam, and sending the lightning onto uh, pretty much just hitting Superman with the the bolt of his magic lightning and then saying Shazam again repeatedly over and over. It's great because if you look at the the first page uh, of the confrontation, you know, it's kind of topsy-turvy, but the very last panel... He almost looks benevolent. You know what I mean? Like half of his face is in shadow, but he's got that goofy grin on his face. And he's just looking down at Superman like, oh, everything's happy as apple pie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Am, am I reading too much into that? He's just kind of, hi, I'm going to electrocute you to death with magic lightning. Ha! Huh? Yeah, he's kind of back to that creepy joker grin he, uh, he has. But I, I'm interested. I guess maybe they're just not showing every single transition. First time he shazams Superman, he does not change back. Second time he does it, it looks like he might change back as he looks like he's in Billy Batson garb on the uh, the second panel of the second page of the sequence here with uh, the Bat Robot in the background and a couple other heroes. So he's um, it makes me wonder if. You know, is he able to somehow, you know, get Superman in the way of the bolt so it's not changing every time, or is it changing every time? I, I hate to pick. Um, I'm, don't mean to nitpick here. I'm just, uh, just being curious out loud. No, I think that's exactly um, what it is. Is uh, he's, he's basically Superman's getting in the way, or he's getting Superman in the way to intercept the bolt. So if he doesn't, doesn't contact him, and he doesn't change back. Because I think later yeah. on when he does get, get him there, Superman's able to reverse it and have the bolt strike him, so he changes back to Billy. Kind of like what they mimicked in uh, the one episode of uh, Justice League Unlimited. The same kind of situation happened. Now that I'm looking at this even closer, um, hello. Um, I'm, I'm sorry I'm doing this in uh, fairly poor light. But uh, not, uh, <laughs> that panel one is not uh, Billy Batson. That is, in fact, um, Dark Star. Is that it? The, uh, the son of um, Nightwing and uh, Coriander. Like, oops, my bad. <laughs> Spoiler alert. He kind of moves. You can see the bar, like he's moving out of the way. Yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, that's exactly right. You can see him moving backwards at super speed, uh, about a good step or so. So he's dodging the lightning and letting it hit Superman, full force. Wow! And it's so magical. Think- so Superman is is uh, isn't Superman uh, uh, more uh, vulnerable to magic? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he yes. certainly is. Do you think it's kind of uh, magnifying over to him and? Uh, Letting uh, Billy Batson back out of the way, or is Billy, Billy just that fast that he can uh, call the lightning down and then uh, slide back out of it? Yeah. Well, if he's, he's Captain Marvel, fast. I think. Yeah, I think he'd be fast enough as Captain Marvel to dodge his own lightning. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we can. Uh, I think we can agree on that. We see as he as uh, he repeatedly hits Superman with his magic lightning that some of the other combatants are starting to fall, and others are are watching what's happening with Superman and uh, and. Captain Marvel. Well, the other uh, shot of Red Robin and uh, and his daughter Dickon is and his daughter there. She's still holding him because he's wo- he's wounded, dying. dying right, in his he's arms. down. And they and if I remember, maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but they were on two the two different sides of the conflict. Red Robin was with Superman, and she was with with Bruce. Right. That's right. absolutely right. Right. So I mean, here I mean, it's just clearly illustrating the tragedy is bringing everybody back, starting to bring people back together. Well, and um, the the scene here. Um, with a green arrow, and uh, you see the uh, the arrow sticking through Green Lantern's thigh and into his uh, shoulder. Uh, oh, and he's got both shoulders and one thigh have been uh, have been hit. And then the uh, the next scene is uh, a Green Arrow 
Uh, I'm not sure exactly what his uh, expression is, but uh, I almost wonder if it's him, you know, kind of looking down as though thinking, what have I done? Yeah, it's super cool they would have those two together, you know, Green Lantern and Green Arrow, I mean, that, with the, you know, all the history that, that two characters have. Is that Flash? Uh, looks like he's down, and his daughter's like, looks like she's caught her attention. She's ready to go and help him now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and even while down, his hat's been knocked off, and he's still vibrating too fast for anybody to focus on him. So we see the, uh, the, the battle start to take its toll. Not only on Superman, but on the uh, the forces uh, united, we uh, go back to Bruce and Diana high above the fray, uh, staring down the three Black Hawk bombers with the uh, nuclear warheads. And Bruce pretty much gives uh, Diana the pep talk. You know, open your eyes. Your answer flies on metal wings. Those are nuclear carriers, the ultimate war bringers. If you're that devoted to the Amazon honor, and if you generally long for atonement on Amazonian terms then let's keep fighting and let the planes do their work. So now Diana realizes she was sent on a, as an ambassador of peace and love from Themyscira, and she totally was shunned by her people for not accomplishing that goal. And now she realizes she has to make the ultimate choice between war, which she has been born for and bred for and trained for all of her life, and peace, which is what you know the higher goal that she's been sent out to accomplish. It's a big turning point for the character. Well, what I don't get here is you, it looks like the choice she's making is to, yeah, Bruce, you're right. Let's go ahead and let the planes go do their work and take care of fall once and for all. And then next thing you know, she's chopping the wing off one of them. So, nope, I guess she would rather go down and, you know, fight that war by hand than to uh, have uh, nukes take them out. And uh, what I find odd is that it looks like Batman is also uh, trying to take down one of those himself. And looks like he does. You know, which is why there's only one getting through. So, yeah, I, I thought that odd. I thought Batman would have wanted um, the, uh, the the nukes to go ahead and do their uh, their ugly job, and unless he was just that confident that there only need to be one. And if so, how was it the Wonder Woman was able to take out one of them? Why does it look like it's obvious they let one through on purpose? And if so, then why did they bother taking out the other two? I just I. I've never really been 100 percent sure. I think I know what the motivation was there. I, I just took it as you know, Bruce has basically proven her point to him, uh, to her, saying like, you know, there's the planes. That's what you wanted, so let him go. You know, almost a reverse psychology, expecting her to you know make a choice and hopefully make the right one, which is to stop the destruction mm-hmm. of the, basically everything. As for letting one go, I just think those three panels are all happening simultaneously. Bruce get one, she gets a second, and the third one launches this missile. You know, there's, there's really no way to stop all three when there's only two of you. And that last panel after the last one makes it through, Norman again says exactly what the reader is thinking. You know, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with the- when you look at that weapon, the bomb, to me it always looked like the John Byrne era Superman, the, the craft he came to Earth on. The way it was always drawn with that little egg-shaped thing in the front, and then the 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 fins around all around it. Every time I see this this warhead thing, it, it always just reminds me of the the craft. It's a good that, catch, that man. Might, cow, cow to Earth. It's a good catch. You're right. I didn't think of that until you said it, but it looks exactly like that. A little ironic, I guess. Maybe it's symbolic. You know, the one the one rocket that looked like this uh, brought him into Earth, and this one's going to take him out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of Superman, he's getting his Kryptonian handed to him by Captain Marvel, by him uttering over and over and hitting him with the magic lightning. And again, we get that super creepy, Captain, smiling Captain Marvel, just very happy about what, what he's doing, even though you know, he's like slowly killing Superman bolt by bolt. 
Now, refresh my um, memory. Is he still under the direct influence of the uh, Mr. Mindworms, or is, are they gone, and this is just simply his residual programming, if you will? He's still, I mean, he's been living with them for so long, he can't shake it that easily. They allude to at the beginning of the issue that um, he is a captain of chaos, I think are the words they use in the, in the caption. Um, the, I think the mind control and then the shock of having all those Mr. Mindworms all over him after being conditioned by them and just everything, you know, the the solid feces hitting the rotary, rotary oscillator, as it were, yeah. is kind of, uh, you know, unloosed his mind. So Billy's not here right now. Billy's in a safe place far away. <laughs> um, and I love that fourth panel, like that second row there, where it shows Superman with his eye I mean, bloodshot eyes. He's got the blood dripping down from his ears coming in coming into the panel. It's just like he is he is in dire straits right now. Yeah, I mean it's, it, this whole sequence though, as it says in the first thing with Norman's monologue, over the sound of distant thunder and then Superman enough. I mean, even with the beating he's taking, the thunder, everything, he, he hears what's going on, he hears the plans, and he's like, Okay, I'm done playing around with you. I mean, he could have probably stopped this any time he wanted, but suddenly the stakes are that much higher that he's able to, to, to stop this by as soon as, you know, he says the word he's able to get Billy under the, under the lighting himself to bring him back to being human again. He just had to want it enough. Plus the whole color dynamic again totally switches. We went from, you know, the red and the, and the, you know, the red alert type coloring and everything. To now, it's, now it's gray. Now it's stopped. Now there's like a, a, just a, a millisecond of a lull. As Superman realizes that the, what is going on, that there's a nuclear warhead coming down. Yeah, and this is a turning point, I think, in the book for on a lot of levels. I mean, on one, Superman's realizing that the human populace is taking matters into their own hands. That it's not just about them, but more importantly, or just as importantly, this is the moment that's been building up for Norman at some time, which we're about to explain. The Spectre's about to explain why he's here. It's time for him to make a judgment. Right. As the Spectre puts it, in either case, we face the evil of genocide. It is my task to punish those responsible for evil. But who shall be held accountable? Whose sin is this, the humans or the superhumans? Tell me, Norman. Judge. And like you said, Ken, this is the culmination of what's been going on since the very beginning when the Spectre came and took uh, Norman on his little trip. Uh, it was, at first, Norman thought that the, the fight was the revelatory, you know, conflagration or whatever, but no, it's this moment between Superman and Billy Batson. And it could go either way, you know, at this point. So he puts it in Norman's hands to judge. It's pretty, uh, and, pretty powerful considering the situation. And it's funny how the dialogue of Norman kind of mirrors Superman's dialogue. In the moment, you know, Norman doesn't feel like he can make the right decision or know what the right thing to do is, and Superman's kind of having the same crisis of conscience as well. You know, he's like, I don't, I don't know what to do, you know. And and then we we see it even not to jump too far ahead, but even on the next page where you know Superman starts and that decision, and then you hear Norman's voice say, "It is not for me to make. I'm not a god." And then Superman says, "I'm not a man." So it, it, it's kind of funny how right at this moment. You know, both of their, I guess both of their stories, you know, like Kevin was saying, or, you know, a minute ago, was that, you know, everything converges right here. You know, this is where, this is where everything hits for, for both of them. And they both have to, you know, kind of make a choice. Exactly. And like the scene you're talking about, Russ, in, you know, the next page or so, where he goes, I'm not a guy, I'm, I'm not a man, but Billy, you're both. And it's true. I mean, if you think about it, he's the only one who has that, you know, level of power, mm-hmm. who is also, a, could be an actual, you know, a regular human. You know what I mean? He's, seen, he's on both sides of the, of the fight, if you think about it. And, I'm, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's always, like, so obvious. I've been reading Captain Marvel or 
you know, following the character for years and years and years. And after reading this and hearing him say that, it's just like, oh, yeah, duh. You know, it's, it's, it's like, again, one of those obvious things, but you never, you know, you just never really think about it. Yeah, something Kingdom Come really did, I think, was bring back, you know, Captain Marvel as a, you know, a serious player in the DCU. I know that it's an Elseworld story, but I think just the exposure that Captain Marvel gets and what a key uh, figure he is in the story really kind of reflected back in the DCU on the character as well. Yeah, and I don't have a lot of experience with uh, with Captain Marvel. I'm I'm going through the old uh, uh, Justice League International stuff. I have the the first trade, and in there, um, he, he's kind of written the way I've always known thought of him, which is to say, he's the young child Billy, but he still has that young child Billy mind when he's Captain Marvel. So he's still you know it's altruistic, kind of the way he was he was played up in, in Justice League Unlimited, and so to see him like this, it, it, well, actually because of his condition, he's still got that level of. Uh, uh, naivete about him because he is being manipulated so much. But I've never known him to be this power as you as you're talking about. Yeah, not to get too far off track, but did you guys ever read the Power Shazam uh, series? It came out around this time. I can't remember if it was right before, or right after, but it was kind of strange because it started. I guess they finally decided they needed to kind of you know Captain Marvel's kind of was kind of one of those characters too that has always kind of had this strange you know history where part of it is a little you know, goofy and, you know, the whole talky tawny thing and the 50 million Marvels and the Uncle Marvel and all that craziness. DC kind of started to get a, a more serious tone after Crisis. They, it, Captain Marvel was kind of one of those characters that was kind of left by the wayside as well. It was kind of strange because his origin or his reimagining after Crisis or, or the second time after Crisis, I guess at this point, was done in a hardcover graphic novel called The Power of Shazam. Then, then when they started the series again, it kind of picked up after that, but it ran... I don't know, probably 40, 50 issues or so, but it was it was pretty good. I, I got the first, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 of them. And it was yeah, I read that series. It was. It was uh, Jerry Ordway, I think, did the, yeah. Yeah, the art. Is that right? He it has a some, very yeah, cool, clean, clean style that worked uh, really well with the Marvel family, I thought. Yeah, that was and, a good, it had good those, series for us. Yeah, those awesome covers, too. Those covers were just were so, were so cool. But, yeah, if you could find those in a 50-cent band or... You even collected, and I don't think they're collected in trade, but yeah, if you can find them in a 50 cent bin somewhere, they're definitely worth reading if you like the character. Um, I thought they did an awesome job, job with that, but like I said, not to, not to get too far off track, but definitely goes along with what we are saying about the, the reinvigorating of the character. Totally. And they, I rem- also remember what uh, Ken's talking about as far as the Justice League International, where he's just kind of, you know, a naive, uh, naive school toy, a uh, schoolboy uh, type. I think Guy Gardner called him Captain Whitebread. I'm not mistaken in that. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think he does. Or even even Justice League Unlimited. You know, Bruce calls him Boy Scouts. Superman's like, wait a minute. I thought I was a Boy Scout. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> I love that episode of Justice League Unli- uh, Unlimited too. That was a great show. Jerry O'Connell doing the voice of uh, Captain Marvel. Yeah, we have to do that on a future episode, definitely. But uh, as I said, as we were talking about before. But Captain Marvel is the quintessential character that, that straddles both worlds. He is both uh, the helpless human and the uh, the superhero. So Superman leaves the decision in his hands as to which is going to pay the price, the ultimate price of uh, this nuclear warhead. Just to see back and get some of the art. We've been saying so much good stuff about it, but what always jumps out at me is is the attention to detail and stuff. And this these couple frames scenes with. Uh, with Superman, just as he's finishing up with, with Marvel and he stops him from saying Shazam and pushing him away, you, you start seeing this, this trickle of blood coming out of his ear. And as he stands up, it comes from 
going like down his face, horizontal across his face, down his face. But every panel afterwards is just advances a little bit further, and it just it's just that attention there. Like it could have been forgotten, it could have been been stopped, it, it could have been not there at all. But every little panel is just like you can see his progression of, of the of this little blood drop on his uh, on his face, and that just kind of jumped out at me. Not because it's it should be there, because absolutely should, but just the fact that that level of detail is is present in any work like this. Again, and another example of that is as uh, Superman's holding Billy's face. Not only do you see the the sweat bead on Billy's brow, but you see a tear roll down Billy's uh, face. So he's explaining to him the choice that is put in front of him, pretty much, to choose between uh, human or superhuman. And Norman's right there as well, in between them, watching as the, uh, Superman explains it all, breaks it all down to Billy, and then lets him go. So it's a pretty powerful scene for both characters, especially the look on Superman's face as he takes his hand away. You know, you then decide. You know, that, that one panel right there, just, I don't know, it's just a very powerful scene. Yep. And then uh, looking down... Superman takes off to side the world, and we look down at Billy, and Billy in the very smallest of voices in a, in a dotted word balloon in the smallest uh, font possible says, Shazam, and uh, chases after Superman. And uh, at first we think maybe that he's chosen for the superhumans to die because he grabs Superman and pulls him out of the way. But it turns out that he is going to himself intercept the, uh, the atomic bomb that the Blackhawks had dropped. And it's a great sequence with these uh, these six-paneled uh, pages uh, because, I mean, it's a powerful sequence, but it's also very action-filled. It only all takes place in a matter of a few seconds. Then on the next page, we see uh, the, the panels get smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where we just have, I mean, the panels are literally splinters by the end of it. Uh, they're little parallelograms. We see all of, almost all of the characters in, that we've uh, seen throughout the whole story. Kid Flash is there. Uh, the Blue Beetle is looking up, the Green Arrow, Black Canary, all 666 even, um, all looking up, all seeing what is going on, all watching as uh, Captain Marvel grabs the, grabs the uh, atomic device and screams his magic word over and over, Shazam, 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 and then causes a nuclear explosion. And probably the prettiest mushroom cloud I've ever seen painted in a comic book. Yeah. I can't help but wonder exactly uh, why uh, Billy Batson decided to go ahead and uh, go down to the ship, as it were. Because um, he says it once to turn him off, so twice to turn himself back on, and the third time, you know, he becomes Billy Batson again. And my guess is um, uh, he doesn't really uh, he doesn't really make that blast. Then he is gone for all time. So his decision is, in effect, to uh, let the alien decide. Um, as he uh, uh, probably knows that Superman's going to live through this since he's tossed him out of the way and done uh, himself. I, I, it's one of the few things I always kind of have wondered about, uh, you know, wonder exactly exactly why Mark Wade, you know, made that particular choice here uh, plot-wise. I just love that page uh, as Marvel grabs the bomb and the panels get smaller and smaller. You could almost see that uh, cinematically, you know, as being a lot of really quick camera shots of, you know, the faces, you know, this, of each, and it just really, you know, ten, you know, it's it's all these beads building up to the, you know, to the big full page of the, the explosion. It's it's just great, great, you know, visual storytelling. Again, I know we've said that about a billion times, you know, going through here, but it's just another great example of it. Yeah. Hey, right in the middle of that page is that. Uh Big Barda and uh, two other people, they created a boom tube, possibly. Are they getting ready to split the scene? There's the, uh, uh, a couple of new gods there with a third in tow, something like that. It's very possible. That's exactly what that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would I'd imagine so. That's not the first time we've seen people leave. We saw, um, what's her name, Darkstar? Is that her name? Uh, 
Dick's daughter leave with Dick earlier. Earlier, we saw them fly away. Okay. Uh-huh. Of course, that was before we knew anything about a bomb. Actually, you know, it would explain that, how they survive. It would, and then that that yeah. uh, right below into the right of that scene, you can see the Green Lanterns stuff starting to create their bubble. Yes, and is that the, the creeper looking to snap six six six's neck? He looks like he's about to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. What he is. Yeah. It, it, if you start losing the hair on top of your head, never let it grow long behind. It's not going to be a good look. It's be kind of creepy, actually. It's called yeah, the skullet. Yeah, no kidding. It's a, it's a mullet with your skull, the skullet. We know, someone, <laughs> we know someone in our neighborhood who has one. That's what we call it. I wish I knew who, uh, at the very bottom of that page, uh, um, you know, Magog without his helmet. Um, uh, kind of wish I knew what he was doing. You know, is he trying to function as kind of a battlefield medic, or is he just he just take a moment to look at a fallen comrade? His uh, and also love to know. Uh, I guess he's if he's looking up and realizing what's going on too. But uh, yeah, kind of almost forgot about him until this point again. And on the next page, we uh, after the nuclear explosion, we see Norman and the Spectre, and again the the shift in color is uh, prevalent throughout this whole issue and throughout the whole series. You know, to really. Um, um, set moods. I, it wasn't until I really started, you know, reading comics with Legion of Dudes, I realized how much um, the color can set the mood. We went from that powder, you know, that that really bright red, uh, almost like satanic red, to now white and and blues and grays. We see Superman's kneeling alone in the devastation, and then on the next uh, giant splash page, we see literally the skeletons of all the fallen heroes, all the uh, all the metahumans that didn't survive the blast. Yeah, I kind of think that's one of the things that really differentiates um, Silver Age, Golden Age comics uh, from uh, what we're seeing now in the last, uh, I guess, almost 10 years now or so, is the uh, the coloring and um, the, the detail uh, given that, and I guess backgrounds also. But, uh, you know, obviously this is a, a bit of a different animal because it's uh, painted, but, uh, but still I don't know how often you would have seen dramatic, dramatic coloring shifts like this in an older book. And, of course, a lot of the older ones I read these days are black and white because they're those essentials and showcases. Um, but I kind of think I'm onto something there because back in the old days, even up through uh, Vernon Austin's uh, X-Men with... Uh, was it uh, the was the color uh, uh, Glennis Glennis or uh, yeah I think that was it and you know the colors are still fairly basic you know you'll have uh, backgrounds of panels that are all one color and the shadings I guess the uh, the, the introducing the computer into the art uh, has made uh, quantum uh, leaps in uh, the production of comics these days yeah back in the day you were lucky if they remembered to paint the Martian Manhunter green yeah, and now. Exactly. <laughs> And now it's like, you know, color is such a major player in the, in the storytelling, uh, especially for a lot of, um, like Alex Ross, John Cassidy, a lot of the artists I really like, a lot of the really detailed artists really bring, you know, make, um, make sure they, they focus on the color of what they're, you know, it, you know, it just adds so much more. Especially on the next page after, after the skeletons, we with, um, again, talking about color, we have all these blues and whites, except for the uh, Superman's eyes in that center panel, bright red. Yeah, he's a little miffed, I think. I also see the contrast of the bubble of some of the supervillain uh, uh, people that were saved by the Green Lanterns. And the Spectre's like, okay, you uh, help me out here. You pass judgment. Thanks a bunch. See you later. Have a good one. <laughs> Norman's like, wait a minute, dude. You just saw Superman. You saw how he flew away. How You know, you saw how mad he was when he left. You can't leave it like this. Yeah. And he appeals to what little humanity the Spectre has left. 
to to help him, you know, turn the tide or or uh, talk Clark down, as it were. Let me uh, let me ask here. Um, what exactly did Norman decide? Because it sure seems like uh, what happened uh, would have happened regardless of his being there or not. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like the specter tipped the scales, you know, towards one or the other. It looked like decisions and, and you know, decisions being made and morals being weighed. And so anyway, you know, Norman uh, you know, has been a spectator and has been, you know, the human point of view throughout all this. So he served a purpose in the story. So even if the answer is, well, you know, maybe they messed that up and, you know, maybe he, you know, actually didn't really decide anything, then, I mean, that's okay with me, but uh, I don't know if you guys have different thoughts on that. I think it's it gets back to, you know, Norman kind of paralleling Superman where he's basically saying, I'm not God. I can't, I can't make this decision. You know, it's, it's, it's not for me or it's not for man to decide, you know, what's to be done here. You know, the specter seems to think that spirit of God's vengeance, that Norman's soul is pure or whatever, needs to help him pass his judgment. And Norman is, is basically saying, you know, no, it's not for me to, to say. And, you know, Superman, you know, kind of backs that up as well. But from the opposite perspective, Superman's almost saying, I'm a God, but I'm not, I'm not truly a man. And Norman is saying, I'm a man and I'm not a God. So, yeah. you know, that I, I, I think I think by letting Captain Marvel make the decision he made, that, that you know, that that's how Norman passed his judgment, or at least that, that's how I take it. Well, so do you think the uh, Spectre, maybe there on that, uh, that page where he says farewell, that uh, he kind of says, well, you didn't really decide it, but, well, it got decided, so I'm out of here. Uh, I guess uh, problem solved. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, at this point, you know, the, the you know decision has been made, judgment has been rendered, and you know it's played out how it's played out. And he's you know as as the you know, spirit of of God's vengeance, he he has no more duty here. Yeah, it says their pain is great, but their war is over. Judgment has been passed. I'm no longer needed. And Norman appeals appeals to Spectre's human side to help to let him try to stop Superman from pretty much destroying human society after what they just did. I think he puts it, uh, you've seen anger that could bend steel. On that panel after, you know, right when Norman comes in, the people running away with their hands out there, it's almost like you can see like an old 70s disaster movie, you know, yeah. what's going on. There's there's people in the upper balcony that are like jumping off and, you know, there's just panic in people's faces as they run away. It's just, I don't know. I always, it just always makes me think of that. Uh, no, it's, it's almost like a mad magazine or something. <laughs> it's just such blind panic. <laughs> But I guess that's, uh, maybe that's what uh, Norman McKay was there for. Maybe the Spectre knew all the time that, uh, that Norman McKay was not going to decide the outcome of the uh, Ragnarok, but was going to uh, be needed for uh, after uh, that was over to uh, um, bring Superman back to his senses, thinking um, probably smartly that Superman is uh, about ready to go uh, blowing up some uh, humans being that mad about things. I, I thought it was interesting that uh, Superman... Norman intuits that uh, Superman is murderously angry here because Superman seemed fairly fatalistic and philosophical about it uh, at the end of his battle with uh, Captain Marvel. I guess just, you know, the if maybe the, the bomb going off just, you know, was too much for him and it just kind of snapped him a little tiny bit. If anything, Superman is all about the sanctity of life. For him to be in the middle of that bomb blast and to see all of those other superhumans, comrades, and enemies alike decimated. That had to have been crippling for him. 
You know, I mean, it's, I think that's where the rage stems from. Stems from. As far as Norman not having a, you know, a, a deciding part in uh, you know the fate of humankind, he is right there in between Superman and Captain Marvel while they're talking. So maybe his influence is more subtle over Captain Marvel. Okay. I don't know, but um, that's that's the way I, I kind of took it. You know, like that he was going to basically, you know, what he decided was what Captain Marvel was going to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, that Norman was able to uh, kind of intuit what Superman was going to do. Because, yeah, he uh, he guessed right. And they showed up at the right place at the right time. And you hate to harp on the point, but just the, the whole fact that the Spectre himself is saying, after 10 years, he has finally let free a wrath that would cower Satan himself. How can any man possibly calm the fury he feels towards his persecutors, which would be the people? And sure enough, the, the scene after that, uh, after the, uh, the the funny running people, and uh, then the Spectre having that little moment of, uh, uh, well, not introspection, I guess he uh, he said it aloud. But then the next shot of Superman, and he's almost completely enclosed, you know, uh, shrouded in shadow. And so basically the only thing you see is his mouth uh, pursed up on the lit side of his face and the, the dark red, you know, Cylon slit for an eye. So you know that he's not your, you know, your average everyday uh, Superman here. He's passed beyond that to something um, even more. Yeah, I mean, think about it. He, his, the woman he loved was killed by a psychotic. He was driven into exile for 10 years. He comes out of exile to try to make things right, and this is what happens. They drop a nuclear bomb on him. I mean, he's yeah. really here for, he, you know, he's run out of bubble gum, you know. I've taken all I can yeah. take, and I can't <laughs> take any more. I love the, the I, uh, line. He's he's welded the doors. He's welded the doors. You know, yeah. he's making sure that, think, you know the building is going to come down on them and they're not going to get out. You know, I think it makes more sense to me that uh, maybe Superman is just mad about how they've treated the entire. You know, I guess we saw it as a uh, a backstabbing that uh, they tried to take out every superhuman in one stroke. Though it didn't seem to be a real surprise. You know, as it was happening out there in the battlefield, I guess afterwards. He allowed himself to get really wound up over it because you know he um, you know he sees who's in the green bubble. He knows that uh, that some have actually survived. But uh, you know I, I would like to think that he's that mad for everybody who didn't make it, uh, rather than necessarily just for himself. I don't right? super, but, Superman. I don't think he saw the green bubble. He had no idea. As far as he knows, he's the only one left. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now that I'm looking back at this. You're right. Yeah. It's, uh, the Spectre and Norman looking at the green bubble. He doesn't necessarily have any idea. That's a good point. So yeah, yeah maybe he thinks he was the only one. Yeah, it's not till the next yeah. page or so when uh, when Batman and Wonder Woman and such are they all show up that he really finds out or realizes that that some have survived and they have a whole discussion to that point. Yeah. Okay. Norman uh, talks him down. He, he tells the Spectre to let me talk to him now. And he, you know, he tells him, Clark, you blame yourself for Captain Marvel from Magog in Kansas and 10 years to end today. Yes, you're angry, but in your, that anger, you're forgetting once more what humans feel, what they fear. They won't forgive you for this, Clark. Forgive yourself. I love it, like, right, be- right before he gets that, before he gets access to that plane, if you will. You know, it's like, you know, Spectre's asking, how many, how can any man possibly calm the fury that he feels towards his persecutors? And Norm's like, I can reach behind it. Do you really think he's mad at them? He's raging at himself, and that's that's the exact point that you know your pastor just read that he tries to get back, get through to Clark, and and he does, and he finally gets there, and enough to have a conversation before the rest arrive. Absolutely, good point. And it is, I mean, it goes all the way back to the death of Lois in the beginning, you know, the, that's referred to in the beginning of the story. All these things that he wouldn't forgive himself for, 
and you know Norman is there to tell him you know, to talk him down. You know, let it go. They won't forgive you for this. You need to forgive yourself for what has happened. Because he set an impossible standard for himself. I think uh, earlier in one of our earlier episodes, we talked about you know Superman's uh, almost naive look at the world. Like just talking to them will cause him to change. Uh, and I think it's all clearly starting to come back full circle now. And as we get to the next next couple of pages, he's going to start to realize that and start to learn to or relearn to live life a different way. Yeah, it's almost his, his speech at the end where he says, "We'll no longer impose our power on humanity. We will earn your trust." Using the wisdom one man left as his legacy. This is, to, you know, we keep talking about Justice League Unlimited, but it's, it's almost like that scene at the end where come down from the satellite at the end of, I guess it's season, season two after they have the big bust up with Cadmus where they go back to the UN and say, mm. it's not for us to to sit up in our ivory tower and you know pass judgment and and act this way. So it, again, I see a lot of parallels to to this story. You know where they where they have that moment. We're not going to lead you. You're going to lead us, and we're going to show you that we can be trusted and 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 earn your respect. You know, basically do what's best for all and not what what's best. Yeah, I think that's when they moved their um, headquarters down from the satellite back to um, you know land. Right. Like a, right. Uh, I think they had both. Kind of like what's in. I think it was the end of the second season. Yeah, but the same thing yeah. that happens here. That third series, and the same thing they have uh, in the current Justice League series, where they have the uh, the Hall of Justice and the Watchtower and the the satellite uh, in, in tandem. Right. So as Norman talks uh, Clark down, explains to him that he put the super before the man, and he, that he actually is you know just a man. That he has to make the decision that's about to come as a man, and to make the right decision. And they realize that enough of the superheroes survived that uh, they're pretty much in the same boat they were before, the uh, distrust between the humans and superhumans. And Superman realizes that the only way that they're going to come to any kind of progress is to work together, work among them, not above them. You know, to not see themselves as gods or, or you know, beings above regular humans, but to work among them and with them, just like Russ was talking about a minute ago. Yeah, it has his uh, Mark McGuire moment here where he tells the, the masses that he doesn't... He's not here to talk about the mistakes of yesterday. He wants to talk about tomorrow. Well, it's, and it's interesting too because even symbolically, they they kind of follow what Superman is saying. They, you know, Wonder Woman takes off her tiara, and Batman takes off his his cowl, and and then we even see moving forward where you know where Green Lantern takes off his you know his mask. It's like they're all kind of you know okay, we get it. That we're all come back down and be real people and not treat ourselves you know this way. Yeah, I think it's just a great moment there. Again, the use of color, we have the stark white background as uh, the reveal goes on, and then the bright, sunny weather as he hangs uh, Captain Marvel's cape as a, as a flag. Yeah, and you notice, uh, well, Dr. Fate's still got his uh, mask on. He's obviously rule-breaking, but Magog's mask is off, uh, the Ray's helmet is off, uh, Green Lantern mm-hmm. takes off his uh, his mask. Even the Flash uh, is not no longer wearing his hat. Not that anybody would be able to see him necessarily, but... They've clearly, you know, made a choice to, you know, be with the humans, I guess, rather than uh, stand apart from them. Once they make the announcement and hang Captain Marvel's uh, cape as a flag, uh, Norman and the Spectre take their leave. And then we see the aftermath of uh, what has gone on. Uh, first, we see Bruce dressed in white for a change, uh, walking down Hospital Hall, a clinic that he's set up. Instead of uh, patrolling Gotham with uh, the robots, he set up a hospital to take care of the wounded and the hurt. With the Batman robots all on the walls, is this in Wayne Manor maybe, or do we know where this is? It is. 
Because if you look at the caption, it says, and in the twinkling oh, yeah. of an eye, great powers reconst- reconstruct a one-state state manner. Sure. Yeah. So I thought that was that, just an awesome contrast. It's like here you have a character that for this point probably 30, 40 years has been all about black and darkness. And even when they show Wayne Manor, it's always the curtains drawn, you know, shadows. And then to contrast it with white and a lot of white and with the red Batman shield. And it's a place of healing um, and openness, you know, and, and, and bringing everyone in. I mean, before, you know, Bruce had this this huge mansion with him and Alfred and, you know, Tim or him and Alfred and Dick or him and Alfred and Jason Todd or, you know, whoever. But, you know, basically three people living in this you know, huge mansion of, in darkness. And now, as a contrast, it's all white, and he's got, at this point, probably tens if not hundreds of people surrounding him at all times. It shows a huge paradigm shift in uh, in Bruce from the beginning of this story, too, because at the beginning of this, he was alone in the cave with his bat robots out doing his bidding, you know, by remote control. And all of, you know, Wayne Manor was destroyed because the supervillains had found out a secret identity and trashed it. And now, not only is that that been rebuilt, but uh, Batman himself has been rebuilt. I mean, when have you yep. ever seen Batman dressed in white and red? You know, we also see um, Lord Naga from Cobra uh, in the clinic. Here we see Ibn Al Kufash. You know, Bruce puts a hand on his shoulder, and we also see Luthor. And we get this nice little moment as uh, <laughs> Batman walks by, says Shazam to Luthor. Luthor, Luthor says, <laughs> "Shut up." <laughs> And the little smirk on Bruce's face is just priceless. There are a few artists who can, you know, get that across like Ross does. It's really cool. We also see Bruce making amends with uh, Dick and uh, Dick's daughter, nursing him back to health, shaking hands. Uh, they were on different sides of the fight to begin with, and now they're reunited. Uh, pretty much his father and son, I would guess. You know, we also see Wonder Woman's uh, triumphant return to Themyscira, which always I was always wonder wonder about this in the book. It's like good job you know nuclear destruction twice and all this other stuff you know way to spread peace <laughs> you know because that's supposed to be you know that's that's like wonder woman's job as an ambassador of peace from the mascara and yeah good job radioactively devastating you know whole parts of the world good one good good peace thing yeah. but she goes back to the mascara and is reinstated and given back her tr and her laurels and uh is made a teacher. Well, this is just a great, I mean, you know, again, we talk about things being cinematic. I mean, this is a great, like, kind of closing montage in a movie. You could obviously see this with, you know, no dialogue and, you know, either somebody's narration in the background and music playing as we, you know, kind of shift back and forth to all these, you know, happenings and going on. Totally, like that one uh, two-panel spread there with Magog and uh, the, the bridal party, 666 is there, or what have or Swastika, I guess, I'm sorry, not 666. Yeah, yeah. And he's being kind of snide, and then Magog smacks him in the back of the head <laughs> to keep him in Very cinematic. And I kind of like how, uh, in, in many cases, I don't. Um, but uh, here, I'm, I'm just, I'm so glad there's different epilogue scenes here because I just couldn't stand it if you know the comic book ended with Norman and the Spectre walking into the light. But uh, it's almost a Return of the King-like thing where you have ending after ending after ending. Yeah. Yeah. The, book, the book could have easily ended and faded to black, so to speak, in at least three or four different places here, just in these, this three or four-page stretch. You know, each, pay, uh, each scene that comes after the climax there is, is almost a, a real psychic bonus to uh, people because uh, you just you don't see the, uh, the, the story you know, 
hold out this way uh, often enough these days. I mean, I, I guess part of it is that they knew for a fact that uh, this was not, uh, you know, going to be a continuing series, and they didn't have to, you know, leave plot holes open, you know, to explore in the next uh, six issues, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, they were able to uh, give us a wrap-up. But, uh, you know, again, thank goodness for all the epilogues to give us a sense of, finally, you know, this here is what allows us to start kind of relaxed back in our sofa and feel that sense of peace. And it's nice to be able to sit here and read something this heavy, for a few pages and, you know, kind of really feel happy for everybody. I don't know about you guys. I wasn't necessarily expecting to get, you know, a nice positive emotional payoff at the end of this thing. You know, so many times these days, you know, the the, the action stops, you know, the end of, I mean, take any, any, you know, event that's happened in the last few years, you know, I mean, geez, the end of Civil War, uh, you know, Captain America's shot in the neck and, you know, at the end of Secret Invasion, uh, turns out the bad guys actually kind of won and, in the Sinestro War, Sinestro had gotten what he wanted, and the world was the universe was a slightly darker place. And you know, you, you so rarely, you know, even in Infinite Crisis, you know, wasn't a happy ending per se. You know, is is one of the, you know, uh, a character who should have been an innocent Superboy. You know, turns out to be a cosmic murderer and get his comeuppance and sacrifice more members of the Flash family and all that. So you don't often get just a nice happy ending and. It's not that, you know, every ending has to be wrapped into a bow and nice and neat and, you know, the sun is out and you can smell the daisies and whatnot, but it's really nice to get it here. And so, you know, again, thank you. You know, thank you, Mr. Wade and, and Mr. Ross for, uh, you know, for giving us this. We see uh, the Green Lantern meeting with the uh, United Nations as the representative from New OA. And the only thing to even tell even tip you off that it is the Green Lantern other than New OA is the ring on his finger. And uh, we're working toward a common good. So all the Green Lantern fans in the house. And uh, then we see Diana uh, meeting Clark out in Kansas. Clark is working on a memorial for all the fallen. Uh, and uh, him and the Ray are working on making the land viable again. You know, getting all the radiation out of the land. And it's kind of fitting that Clark is ending the book right where he started, on a farm. Yep. A real one this time. Yeah. Not just a construct Re- in the fortress. Rediscovering his humanity through a pair of eyeglasses. Something that uh, Kirk uh, didn't really want to do in Star Trek Two, And uh, yeah, he almost uh, paid for that with his life. It also works as a great reminder to him to remember about the man part of Superman. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's a reminder, okay, I wore these a long time as a man. This reminds me of my experiences as a man. You know, I have to keep that in mind while being Superman. You know, which is what he had said earlier in the... Uh, United Nations, so very fitting gift from Diana. Well, it's nice to see the uh, the, the kiss between them this time is uh, is warm and uh, full of friendship and camaraderie and all that. It's not the cold, okay, well, I'll see on the other side of the Civil War coming up. Um, a nice place to be taken to emotionally. And the next scene we see Norman wrapping things up with the Spectre, and the Spectre shows Norman his true face as he was uh, as Jim Corrigan, which is, is pretty cool. It's the first time we see that in this book. Yeah, and this is actually how it ended in the issues. Really? Yeah, in the original issues of the story, this is it. There was no, the epilogue was not in the, the original issues. Wow. No, it was not. It was it was added no to trades. It was added for it the was, trade, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it wasn't, it wasn't even made available at all as a single issue or backup or no. whatever? Okay. Kind of like the scene wow. with, um, is it a previous issue where where they yeah. go to, to Apocalypse and yeah. and they see... They see Orion now as kind of the taking. Yeah, that wasn't in the original issues either. So and true. being in the trade form, 
in the trade format, and then obviously in, I'm looking at it in the absolute, you don't have the constraints of check. You know, the originals were what 64 page, you know, four 64 page issue or prestige format issues. So you're right, they're, they're square bound. Yeah, square bound. So you know, when you, once you go to trade in the absolute, you've got a little more flexibility. You know, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. So that stuff was added after. Um, so yeah, this epilogue, the one year later epilogue was not in in, a, in the original presentation. So maybe it wasn't necessarily created just for the trade. It just was mere material that hadn't been used or didn't make it into the issues. It was already done. Yeah, my right? understanding, yeah, it's stuff that Wade and Ross always wanted to put in there, but they just didn't have the room. And then, you know, either knowing trade, you know, at some point was coming or novelization or whatever, that they'd be able to stick it back in. So Yeah, so I think it's, a, it's just like Superman, like taking the example of Superman, has gotten a little more in touch with his human side as opposed to the supernatural side. And I think that's what that's kind of represented as seeing him as part of the congregation, you know, listening to Norman. So maybe he has gotten a little more in touch, back in touch with his humanity that he had, you know, at the beginning previously lost so much that he needed Norman to begin with, to be you know, an arbiter. Yeah, that's so. one thing I wasn't sure about because my limited experience with the Spectre is pretty much just the recent, uh, like the Green Lantern stuff right before Rebirth and Rebirth itself. But I thought the whole idea of the Spectre being bound to human spirit was so he would have that humanity and you know I'm, through, I'm reading through this book thinking okay this is this the unbound spirit um which is why he needs norman because there was a whole time during basically all of uh infinite crisis uh where he, he was uh he was it was just the, the specter you know there was no human human host or partner if you will once he was freed from hal until he picked up um crispin like the detective right uh so here he is he has a human a human uh Host, if you will, even host, I guess, but that's still not enough in, for this for the Spectre. Is that is that how I'm reading it right? Yeah, I think so. I think um, he has been the Spectre for so long, you know, and been the judge and the arbiter for so long that he was kind of out of touch with what you know, not only his human side, but what made that human side important. And then seeing everything that has played out in front of him with him and Norman, I think, has kind of reaffirmed in him that humanity and why that humanity is important to who he is. So now he can go forth and do the job of the specter you know, a whole again. That's what I got from it. Okay. Are we ready for the epilogue now? Gentlemen. Yeah. One year, one year later, <laughs> not to be confused with another one year later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have the absolute edition, I can't, again, we say this all the time, but I can't recommend it enough because at the at the end of the and we won't go through this because it's all documented. I'm sure you can find it online as well. But there are so many hidden jewels on these pages. You know, various creators that are rendered as part of the wait staff and the folks behind the behind the scenes. You've got Yvonne Craig, you know, somebody dressed as Batgirl that looks exactly like Yvonne Craig. Yeah. And, um, DC editor Mike Carlin is right next. Is right next to the uh, Martian Manhunter. Mark Grunwald, yeah. yeah. Again, you're right, Russ, if you have the Apocrypha, I mean, you could literally spend hours, you know, going through, oh, well, that's blah, 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 or, you know, yeah. that's blah, blah, blah from blah, blah. It's great how much uh, detail and attention they pay. It's really cool. Yeah. The plastic Man is the table they're sitting at, just stuff like that. Is oh, awful. I missed that. That's great. <laughs> well, uh, our one-year-later epilogue shows Planet Krypton. 
restaurant we saw at the beginning, the uh, themed restaurant uh, based on superheroes, kind of like Planet Hollywood, but for superheroes. And we see, again, uh, like we're saying, you know, all the different Easter eggs and pictures. of. We see the long-haired waiter in the Superman costume. Smoking or non-smoking? Greetings, citizens. Smoking or non-smoking? And Diana says, be nice, Clark. <laughs> He's got that... He's got that stern look. He's got his hands in his pockets. Like, Chest puffed mm-hmm. out. He's like, all right, let's, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Come on, buddy. And it's also kind of cool. The very first panel on the left-hand side, we see Wiz, a little bit of uh, Wiz Comics number one, which is the very first appearance of Captain Marvel, Yeah. which kind of alludes to the other story. Again, another another cool little Easter egg. It's just I, I find this whole scene very hilarious. I, uh, I would love to open a restaurant that was just like a planet Krypton. And uh, their their reaction to it is just hilarious. You, know, you don't find any of this unsettling. <laughs> I'm accustomed to I'm accustomed to seeing mortals pay tribute to their gods. <laughs> it's not a church; it's a restaurant. Yeah. Relax. Uh, so where is he? And he goes. in Wonder Woman goes. You're the one with X-ray vision. Did you look behind the giant penny? <laughs> it's so cool after after all the storm and drang of. Uh, of Kingdom Come and all the you know heavy dialogue and everything to hear these two characters you know I, I mean things have changed so much and now they're they're joking around you know they're jovial right. they've they've really turned a corner I love the line you know you didn't tell him did you of course not it actually mean seeing him surprised who am I to spoil the moment <laughs> <laughs> then uh, Bruce does Bruce does uh, join them. Uh, and uh, Clark Media is like, there you are. You snuck up on me. Me? How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's just not, you know, great little humor, and it's cool to have all this humor after you know, as heavy as uh, Kingdom Come was. And uh, Aquaman is their uh, their uh, drink waiter. Superman orders milk. <laughs> love the picture Wonder on the wall behind them. So I love the picture on the wall behind them. Which Maybe one? The batarang? No, no, right above the right above the right above the bannerang. Uh, isn't that King Tut from the old uh, King Adam Tut West? From the Batman, yes. That's right. Yeah, King oh. Tut, King Tut from the. 60s. Yeah, Alex Ross is a big fan of the, of that stuff. Good for him. Catch. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a great Victor Bono, isn't it? I love Batman's order: coffee and keep it coming. Because <laughs> you know he works he a lot of late nights. He's probably a little sleepy during the day. Yep. If you think about it, you know, it makes total sense. Of course, Superman gets yeah. his milk in the Shazam glass. Yeah, and the ketchup it has the big WB logo on it. Uh, the, the, everybody's trying out the cosmic treadmill above that scene, too. Yeah. Right. And I love the guy that leans over and goes, excuse me, are you? And Bruce is automatically like, yes. Using the ketchup, we run out. And he's like, ah, that'd be my guess. Are those, um, in the very first panel that Bruce is holding, are those salt and pepper shakers shaped like the bulleteer? I and think they are. Yes. yes. That's pretty sweet. I think on the page where where they first ordered the drinks underneath the battering to the left, isn't that Bruce Tim? I was thinking, I think so, isn't it? I think it's Bruce Tim. That's awesome. I could look in the, I could look in the, so we weren't going to do it, here we are doing it, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's Bruce All Tim and then Paul Dini, Paul Dini next to him. That's awesome that they'd be right next to each other, obviously. I mean, that's cool. Yeah. So uh, they toast to their absent friends, and then uh, Robin comes to take an order. You are. Uh, hi, I'm Robin. Of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> Today's special is the Power Girl Chicken Sandwich. The cut? Breast. breast. <laughs> and the Dial H for Hoagie, which is hilarious as well. Yeah, these pages are just so perfect. I mean, we just got some heavy stuff, and the way we're laughing after a whole nuclear explosion is just, I can't imagine this not having been there. 
You know, I can I, I would be so depressed after reading that that last issue in an issue without this there. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a bummer. I mean, when you originally read it, I mean, and I didn't, I didn't, I knew of this stuff, but I never got Kingdom Come and Trade. I mean, I got the the original issues, and and knew that all that stuff was in the trade. And then when the Absolute came out, I got it. But that was the first time I got this Absolute, maybe a, eh, about a year and a half ago now, and wow. uh, and and that was the first time I've read I read you know this piece. I've seen a page here and there online, but yeah, as a, as a grouping, this is the first time I've read it, or the, that was the first time I read it when I got the absolute. I love the uh, the orders too. I'll have the giant turtle soup, <laughs> and for you, sir, there's Starro the casserole, and then Bruce. <laughs> Bruce has none of that. I'll have none of that. <laughs> steak, well done. <laughs> well, well, we have man uh, of beef, and there's uh, steak, well done. <laughs> which, um, as a chef, kind of bums me. Yeah, out. I was. I was the worst way to eat steak. I mean, I was, Bruce. Yeah, Bruce is like a world traveling playboy. He would, should know better than to order. No, he's well getting done. on in years, though. It probably would wreak havoc with his digestive system if it was uh, too rare. <laughs> See, I'm a I'm a well done guy myself. So, and you're from uh, what? You're from Texas. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know. I'm not originally. Kick, kick the hooves off of it, throw it on the fire thirty seconds till it stops screaming, and then eat it. That's how I heard it. Texas. That's funny because my father in law basically likes his steak flame kissed. So it's always the joke where he he says he's going to go get an old boot and stick it in the oven for me, and uh, I can I can eat that. Well, I, I had a teacher who said you can eat anything if you can eat old shoe leather if it has enough ketchup on it. <laughs> yeah, I love this man. next panel. You're talking about Easter eggs and little things put around there. Just to go through here, we've got Bizarro Earth, the Invisible Plane, Starro, and the George Reeves Superman costume, just to name a few. And I think that might be Alan Slater as Supergirl. From the movie in the front there. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, the Trinity get down to business. They uh, they order. Clark explains to uh, Bruce that he's uh, trying to uh, trying to deradiate, de- as it were, Kansas. The ray has been a big help, he says, in stripping the land of its radioactivity. And the, the, I love this line too. Past that is simply a matter of hard work and patience. I imagine you can relate. And then uh, Bruce uh, reports to them about what's been going on. About the rehabilitation at, uh, for the injured at uh, Wayne Manor, even Luthor. And uh, I love this line. Oh, he sends his best. Really? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Luthor sends his best. Really? No. And then uh, they drop off the food, and his steak is not well done at all. <laughs> not a shade over medium. Miss. Yeah, but Clark can take care of that. Right. So he Clark decides to heat it up for him a little bit and help him out. And, uh, Bruce surmises that Diana's pregnant before they're able to announce it. Always, then, a, uh, always the detective. Yeah, yep. exactly. He explains exactly how he is able to deduce that uh, from you know the, the little bit of gray in her hair that you know she's put on a few pounds, and then uh, they surprise Bruce with the announcement that they want him to be the baby's godfather to give him you know their child the perspective that they can't. And, and this is pretty much the whole point that this whole series has been going through. I mean, we've had the, the, the children of these powered heroes who haven't had this level of guidance and, you know, two of the most powerful, most probably the most powerful man and woman, you know, on the planet are having a child. And, you know, and they, and they know, they, they know now clearly the responsibility that they have. They need to, to bring up this child correctly of all the people in the world to trust that to is, is Bruce. I do like that. Bruce says, I haven't had a, exactly a spotless record as a parent, you know, 
but they talk uh, Bruce into, they explain to him why. There are things that they say that Batman could teach our child that Clark and I can't, things that we would never think of. And he explains that, well, you you rule on trust and I rely on fear. And Clark says, you're right, you're a moral man who we can count on, and uh, you're right, I'm all about trust. And he says, I know we've had our differences, but I, I, I trust you and I always have. And they have the embrace that uh, of you know two good friends finally you know, reconciling, which is so cool because I mean, after you know them being at loggerheads all through uh, Kingdom Come, it's nice to see them come together as as friends, not only as a team but as friends. I've always seen Superman and Batman because they don't see eye to eye on anything really, but they always. Um to me were like more like brothers than than friends than anything else and if anything this whole series felt like felt like brother against brother and here they are coming back together um even the series superman batman i get a lot of that you know they like they, they you know brothers care for each other you know differences of opinion uh but that that's that's always been the way i've categorized their their relationship and their friendship it's uh, it's deeper than just friendship i mean they're as close to being brothers as you can without being blood yeah i definitely agree with that and it's it's cool to see them you know, put aside their differences from the the Kingdom Come story and come together. You know, uh, with the the you know the birth of this child or whatever. So it's pretty neat. Yeah, I love where where you have the specter sitting there with Norman. He goes, "That's a specter platter," and then Norman tells him, "Look at it this way. It's it's flattering to be remembered somehow." <laughs> yeah, uh, I just uh, the the last exchange with uh, or the second to last with with the the triumvirate here is uh, Batman. You know, so if you realize you just handed the influence over the most powerful child in the world, you know, Superman says, I thought you'd agree rather quickly. Diana then uh, says, uh, you know, come with a, figure out a way to share custody because, after all, you know, we wouldn't want a child to be raised in an isolated society of zealots, <laughs> to which he gives mm-hmm. a cliche. Then Bruce uh, pimping uh, his name out uh, for the, uh, the child of, uh, you know, <laughs> child of Clark and Diana. Russ, if you have it handy there, um, next, so who's sitting next to the Spectre? Is that, is that anybody? Because it looks like it, I should recognize that face, but it's not enough for me is to... That Jim, is that Jim Corrigan again? Well, next to Jim no. Corrigan, next to him. Oh, the other the other way? Yeah, like his face, me, you're seeing half his face cut off with the hat and the glasses. He's yeah, kind of, he's, uh, he's got kind of crazy eyes. Kind of, he's wearing glasses, I really can't right. see. Let's see. Oh, okay, okay, I was looking on the other side of the page. Four. Yeah, I mean, we... Oh, uh, yeah, I see, t- yeah I see the guy. I wasn't looking at the other guy. He doesn't say. Okay. Okay. Just the way he was paying yeah, attention no. to their conversation, I thought maybe that was meant to be somebody. Yeah, it, 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 if it is, the notation doesn't say. The notation just focuses on the helmets um, in the background. Sergeant Rock's helmet, mm-hmm. the different Hawk helmets. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that we, uh, that we get the actual Hawk helmets, even though it... Seems kind of. I, I wish we had sent Vancer that uh, the Hawkman had uh, the Hawkman in this this comic book uh, story has seemed to be you know an actual kind of an animal. My impression was that Hawkman you know that really kind of wasn't a helmet anymore. So right. I wonder uh, wonder what the backstory is behind that. I guess we'll never know. I think it's just yeah, all the original stuff. You know the the okay. either gold golden age stuff because the helmets that they show. It's Carter Hall's, it sees Carter Hall's Hawkman helmet, Amazing Man's helmet, Sargon the Sorcerer's turban, Enemy Ace's headgear, and then Sergeant Rock's helmet. So I think it's just all the early stuff. Yeah. You know, considering on the page before we see Zippy the, the Super Turtle, I don't really think we, you know, continuity is <laughs> being uh, adhered to strictly. 
Okay. Right here, you know. <laughs> that last being made into soup. That second to last panel is that Sandman's gear in that in that case? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It sure looks like Interesting it. way Good. to end it with what considering where we started. Yeah, as I say, it, it pretty much ends where it began. You know, started off with Sandman and and kind of in a way ends with Sandman. You know who I think the guy is sitting next to Norman? I don't think it's Reverend Jim. I think it's Uncle Sam. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. At the bar there? Yeah, it yeah. Could, could be. The uh, the last line is, is another great one, too. A battler for truth, justice, in a new American way. I can hardly wait to see it for myself. Let's go home and dream about the future. Which, I mean, leaves the door open for more and more stories, which they did go into with uh, the Kingdom miniseries to, you know, mix success, to say the least. And uh, in the current JSA, uh, that Kingdom Come storyline, uh, which featured uh, Kingdom Come Superman. Which uh, I, I actually just got, I read the first hardcover of that, which is the first, it, it's kind of weird the way it's broken down. It's really only, I think, the first two parts of that story. And uh, in my upcoming DCBS shipment, I have volume two of that with hopefully volume three to be on the way soon. What are your impressions on it? Because I haven't gotten to read it yet. It's good. I like it. Um, I, I, I've, I've read just that, and then I did. The only other thing I've read, because I didn't realize how tightly it was connected to it, was the JSA annual with um, Power Girl returning to Earth 2, and that was that was pretty darn good as well. So, so far, I'm, yeah. I'm really liking it. I, I, I'm really starting, for whatever reason, to get into a lot of this JSA stuff. I like all the – I think it's just the whole legacy thing in the, his, in the history – so I'm starting to look for the first volume JSA that James Robinson and David Goyer wrote so much of, and then, or I'm sorry, Jeff Johns, Jeff Johns and um, and David Goyer wrote, and then the second, you know, vol or the, the the second iteration, collecting all the hardcovers. I got volume one, I think I've ordered, and then it's, like I said, the the next Thy Kingdom Come coming too. So um, I really like it. I think it's an interesting premise, and I'm I'm interested to see where they're going with it. The JSA yeah, kind of angle was outstanding. I mean, the cover, of course, the Alex Ross cover, but I was a big fan of, like, Infinity Incorporated and All-Star Squadron. And uh, to read that JSA annual was just a mind-blower for me. I loved it. I just thought it was great to see all those characters again, all the, the Earth 2 characters brought back. Yeah, I think that was fantastic, but uh, I wish they were um, uh, picking another artist up, such as Jerry Ordway. And I, I hate to... Um, I hate to get down him. Mean, he doesn't actually bother me like, say, uh, Jai Lee or Rob Liefeld does. But um, it just seems, you know, in, in this day and age, you, you really expect um, um, so much more out of the, uh, the art. And uh, Ordway seems to have a very kind of a, a very 70s, you know, early 80s style. And so, you know, reading uh, an Ordway story just kind of almost feels like, you know, is this a back issue from, you know, 1979 or 82? Uh, um, geez, even the coloring seems to be a little bit simpler in uh, in his books. And I'm not sure. Uh, I'll probably, you know, I'm sure I'll keep picking it up. I've, uh, I got sucked into uh, JSA uh, right before the uh, Kingdom Come started. I guess probably right before the, uh, the Lightning Saga uh, kind of hit. And then, uh, you know, got into Kingdom, uh, that Kingdom Come and, and that's you know that took us you know quite a ways down the road. I mean, it took a long time to wind through that, so I can imagine wow, three volumes to get through that, huh? That's that's kind of interesting. But for me, I mean, uh, Dale Eaglesham, um, I'd never read anything um, that he'd done before uh, JSA, and it took me a little while to get into his art, and uh, I finally did. And now they go and you know yank him out, and you know Marvel went and stole him. So I'm pretty bummed about that. Hopefully it'll hopefully it'll work out uh, well for everybody. You know, 
Yes, I'm I'm all sad. I don't know that uh, Jerry Ordway is or is not going to be the new permanent JSA artist, but uh, I kind of wish they'd find somebody else, I think. Well, maybe we'll uh, do JSA on a future uh, episode. That would be pretty sweet. That wraps up uh, Kingdom Come, guys. Uh, thanks a lot for coming along for the ride. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, for my uh, friends, uh, Ken Morgan, Russell Latham, and uh, Adam Umack, who was with us earlier, and Bill from uh, Half Hour Wasted. We extend our Legion of Dudes uh, hearty farewell. farewell. If you're in Pittsburgh, please come see us this weekend at the Steel City Con, 1 p.m., the trivia contest at our table. Win a lot of cool geeky prizes, meet some really tough and good-looking derby girls, and uh, show off uh, what a great uh, geek you are. I mean, what other chance do you get to use your trivia to actually win some cool and geeky prizes? And then the week after that, join Russ at uh, Comic Palooza on Free Comic Day, right, Russ? I will be there. Um, I'll probably be there, most, like I said, most of the weekend. Come check it out. It's Midnight Comics is right across the street. Great little comic shop. Um, I went there for years and years and years when I lived in Houston, and they always they pulled my books um, religiously for a long time. So, so definitely go check them out. Well, the Legion of Dudes East is taking over Pittsburgh. The Legion of Dudes West, South and Southwest is taking over Houston. It's only a matter of time before our plan for world domination comes to fruition. If you have any mail, comments, suggestions, cookie recipes, plans for plutonium-powered bombs, or <laughs> really good uh, snapshots of uh, attractive young ladies, send them to comments at legionofdudes.com. Let us know what you think. Thanks a lot, guys, for helping out and uh, for your uh, insight and uh, and wisdom and intelligence and all the other good stuff. And special thanks to Bill, the voice from Half Far Wasted. Thanks. thanks for coming along on this trip with us, Bill. I appreciate it. And I hope this uh, takes you guys one step closer to world domination. That's all. A, that's one step at a time, my friend. I can tell you right now that Frank and Brad and I are looking to keep a low profile on that. So yeah, we'll just ride your coattails. How about that? No problem. We'll give you Australia. <laughs> you guys can have australia how about that i love it i love it join us next week for one of our wild card episodes it's going to be exciting it always is with legion of dudes and uh for ken and russ and bill and myself and adam yak good night thanks for joining us night